Good morning. How we doing today? All right, good deal. Hey, I'm excited to be with you today. Um, it's, a, it's an honor just to have this opportunity. I've been down at the LC all summer, so it's great to get up here in the sanctuary and, and see what a real service is like. Uh, <laughs> um, I want to take an opportunity real quick just to say this, um, because I know that Pastor Keith probably wouldn't say it. Um, go Tigers. <laughs> go Tigers. All right. Um, yeah. Well, my name is Caleb Crittenden. I've been the youth pastor this summer. I've been working with the students with my wife, Demi. She's sitting right there on the front row. Um, and we have, we've loved being here. We've, we've had a great time. Um, and j- in such a short time, we feel like we have really found a family here. And uh, that's, that's exciting for us. Um, you have great people here, great students here, and it's, been, it's just been an honor to, to be here with you. And I'm, I'm excited to have a chance today to share with you um, what I've been learning in God's Word. I hope that, that you can get something from it today. We're going to be looking in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. Now, this is nothing new for the students. We spent a couple of weeks uh, this summer looking at the first chapter of 1 Peter. Today, we're going to look at the second chapter. But before we look at that, I want, I want to fill you in. Uh, I want to fill you in on what happened in the first chapter uh, because I think it's very important just, just for us to understand what's, what's going on. So as you're turning, Peter, he writes this letter. He writes the letter of 1 Peter to a group of believers um, who are scattered around uh, the dispersion. They're scattered in different places of the Roman Empire. And really, they, they're living in a, in a culture, living in a place that does not accept them. They're, they're living in a society that wants to have nothing to do with them. Um, a society that does not embrace their beliefs, it doesn't embrace their traditions, it doesn't embrace uh, their viewpoints and the way they make decisions and the way they live their lives. In fact, it actually promotes a lifestyle that is completely opposite to the life that they've been called to live as Christians. So it's a difficult time for them. Um, these Christians that he's writing to, they're experiencing persecution. They're experiencing a challenge to their belief because it is so different uh, from the, the culture, the Roman culture that they are surrounded by. And he gives them this title as he addresses them. In the very first few verses, he calls them the elect exiles. He calls them, another translation, the scattered strangers. Maybe another way of thinking about it would be the chosen aliens. Those are the titles he uses to give these believers because they're, they're chosen by God. They've, they've come into a relationship with God, but they live in a world where they are misfits, where they're aliens, they're exiles, they're strangers. They don't fit. And as negative as that may sound as a title, I mean, I don't know that exile or stranger or alien is the title we would, we would long for as people. Um, he gives them this, this promise. He gives this, them this, this encouragement. And he basically says to them in the, in the opening chapter, you have a hope. And your hope is not in anything this world has to offer. It's not in anything that can fade or be be destroyed. Your hope is in an inheritance. An inheritance that is waiting for you in heaven. An inheritance that cannot be defiled. That cannot be um, destroyed or ruined. It will not perish. That's your inheritance. And it's waiting for you in heaven. So have faith. Have hope. Embrace it. Embrace that identity as an outsider. Embrace that identity as an alien, as an exile, because it's worth it for what's ahead, what's coming. And that's, that's the, the promise he gives them in chapter 1. Now, the reason I talk to you about 
chapter 1 and this idea, this audience of outsiders is because I, I think as I look at, at our situation um, and the, the world we live in, we are in a very, very similar state as believers. We live in a culture that does not support us. A culture that does not want us to be who we are. A culture and a society that not only disagrees with us, but lives a lifestyle that is actually opposite to what we are living and what we're called to live. Would you agree with me on that? That's, that's the world we live in. And so in a sense, even though Peter is writing this letter to an early church thousand, a couple thousand years ago, it, it's, a, it's an identity that, that matches where we are right now in our state, in the 21st century, as outsiders. Now, I know a thing or two about being an outsider. I, uh, some of you know this, but I grew up as a missionary kid. We lived in a little tiny island in Asia called Sri Lanka. Ever heard of that, that country before? Some of you have? Okay. I had never heard of it until I moved there. Um, but I know what it means to be an outsider because of the six years I spent there. When I would show up in a new place or, or walk down the road, I, I had a new name, a new nickname. It wasn't Caleb. It was Sudha. Ah, Sudha is here. You know what Sudha means in singular? White. White. So wherever I would go with my family, we'd get out the car and immediately we would just, it was like paparazzi. We'd get swamped. We'd just, ah, Sudha, Sudha, can we take photo? Can we take photo with you? Immediately. As soon as we got out. Do you have Facebook? Can we add you? Facebook. Immediately. As soon as we got out. It was like we were celebrities. They wanted to touch our skin to see if it was skin and see what our hair felt like because they'd never seen blonde hair before. Um, my family, we, we were outsiders as we were there in Sri Lanka because people had never seen anything like that. They'd never seen us before. And so I, I kind of got that feeling. But even when I would come back, when I would come back to America, I, I'd, I'd show up here and I was still the outsider because now guess who I was? Now I'm the missionary kid. Right. Exactly. And I don't know which side is... Which one's worse? Because now I, I walk into a place and, oh, you're the one that went into the jungles and, the, and you went through all over Sri Lanka. Do they wear clothes over there? Do, yeah. Yes, they wear clothes over there. Yes. <laughs> the, the, the questions that I would get, well, how do you say banana in Sri Lankan? And all, all kind of stuff. I mean, wherever I went, it was, it was this, this same old uh, interview over and over again of, of what life was like in the, in the villages of Sri Lanka. So, I've, I've experienced that, that feeling of being an outsider, of being in a place where I just didn't feel like I fit, a place where I looked, acted, and sounded differently than the people that I was around. Um, so this it's kind of hit home with me. But I, I think the same is true of us as, as believers. If we're truly obeying what, what the Scripture says, we're, we're going to live a life that looks different and causes us to be an outsider, causes us to have to choose whether or not we want to identify with that title there, that elect exile, that chosen stranger, that, that alien. So if I want to talk to you about chapter 2, why do I spend so much time sharing what chapter 1 is about? Well, the reason is because chapter 2 gives us a very, very serious challenge. It gives us a very, very serious charge, one that is not comfortable, one that is not easy. Or natural. It actually goes against our human nature. It goes against our instincts. And I believe, and, and hear me when I say this, I believe that it's only if we truly understand the identity we have in chapter 1 that we'll be able to embrace 
and obey the charge we get in chapter 2. And I'll say that again. Only when we identify with and can, can accept this identity we have as chosen strangers who are waiting, hopeful for an inheritance. Until we recognize that and, and accept that, we will not be able to obey and embrace this charge, this challenge that Peter gives us in chapter 2. So that's why I spend all that time talking about what it means to be an outsider, talking about this inheritance that we have to look forward to because it's, it's significantly important in helping us understand the charge that Peter gives us here in chapter 2. So let me, let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll dig into it. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word and I thank you for what it says to us. I thank you that you, you guide us and direct us. You teach us how to live um, through your word. I thank you that your word gives us access to you. I ask that as, as we look at it today, that you would give us clear eyes and open hearts to take in and obey whatever it is your word challenges us to do. God, I ask that you would simply use me as a mouthpiece. Use my words to speak your truth, not my truth. Uh, in your name we pray, amen. So if you'll look at, with me at, at verse 13, starting in verse 13 of chapter 2. This is where we're going to begin. I think you can, you can probably see the challenge already there. It might be the heading uh, of, your, of that passage. Um, but verse 13, it says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every institution. Maybe your, your version says, Submit yourself to every uh, human institution. There's the challenge. That's what we want to look at today. Uh, the, the act of submission, the heart of of submission. Um, that's, that's what our focus is going to be. And as I was thinking about a way to define submission, I, I couldn't help but be reminded of the way that my dad defined it for me when I was a kid. Um, he, he basically told me that to submit, the, the act of submitting, it's, it's a lot like coming to a yield sign on the road. Um, you, you've seen the yield signs, the triangle um, with the, the word yield on it, it's red. Um, when, you, when you approach a yield sign, what, what do you have to do? You have to put your will, which as a driver who has somewhere to go, our will is to go, right? To move. No one likes to just sit in their car. Um, our will is to go. But when you approach the yield sign, you have to put that will on hold so that the car in the lane that you're about to enter, the road that you're about to become a part of, can go by first, right? So to yield is to put my will on hold for the sake of someone else who is trying to move. And only once they've cleared the lane and it's safe for me to approach, then I can enter the lane, right? Then I can move forward. And that's, that's what it means to submit. That's, that's, that's what that word means, to yield my will, my longings, my desires, uh, my plan for my life for the sake of someone or something else to submit. And I think Peter would agree with me, especially as he says, submit yourself to every human institution. This is not just a one-time act. This is not one of those things where he says, submit yourself in that situation and submit yourself in that situation and maybe submit yourself in that situation. What he's talking about is, is a heart attitude of submission. Not a one-time act, not, a, not just a deed you do, but, but what I would call a posture of submission. It's, your, it's in your demeanor. It's in your personality, in your heart, to have one of submission. To in all things, humble yourself, lower yourself for the sake of someone or something else. And I think that's what he means when he says to submit. So he goes on, 
That's verse 13. He goes on. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 18. This is where we're going to really focus our attention. He goes on in verse 18 to say, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now here, he's, he's talking about servants and their relationship to their masters. Now, your version might say a different word for servants, and that word is probably the more accurate one. Does anyone's uh, Bible say slaves there? Yeah. Slaves is more, more what we're talking about here. Especially, you see it there, be subject to your masters. That's what kind of gives it away. We're, we're talking about slaves here. And before I lose you there, before the human rights activists stand up and like start to stone me for, for talking about slavery in church, let me kind of clarify where, where we're going here um, with this. First, the first thing we need to notice, slavery at this time the, in the Roman Empire was a little bit different than, than what we think of when we think of slavery, when the, the slavery that we've learned about. Um, in the Roman Empire, slaves, in most cases, were what we call bond servants, which basically means a person who has sold their rights to a master. Me saying, here, I'm offering you my services um, for this price. I'll be your slave. So that's a little bit different than, than our idea of, of, of the slave trade. These slaves, they would be educated in most cases. Um, they could marry. They, they could make money. And they did make money and actually would, almost all of them would eventually buy their freedom uh, by the age of 30 was, was when most of them would buy their freedom. So again, a very different picture of slavery than probably what we would, we would assume. But still slavery and still a horrible, horrific institution of man, still a, a symbol of man's sin and man's desire for power and to rule over another man. And you'll see in the passage we're reading today cases where uh, many of these masters uh, were still very, very uh, rude in the way they treated their slaves. They would beat them and they would treat them unfairly and the slaves would suffer unjustly uh, for their work. So again, I'm not condoning this and neither is, neither is Peter. He's simply addressing that it exists. And I think there's a difference there. Uh, there, are, there are plenty of things in our society today that I do not agree with, but I'd be kidding myself to never talk about them or act like they weren't a part of society because that doesn't do anything to fix them. Um, and I think it's similar here. It's not that Peter's condoning slavery. It's not that he's supporting it. It's simply that he's mentioning it, mentioning it as a part of our society, um, as something that goes on. And I would, I would say there's a parallel for us. We don't have slaves and masters in our day, but, but we could draw a parallel between the slave and the master in, in the same way we would a worker and a boss, um, a student and a teacher. Really, any kind of institution where someone is put in charge of you, someone is over you, um, this, is, this is the kind of relationship he's talking about when he talks about submitting. Um, so that's, that's what I would refer to this as. Uh, don't, don't go crazy thinking we're, we're, we're celebrating slavery or anything like that. That's not, that's not what's going on here. So as we look at this passage, as we look at these verses, we're, we're, we're focusing in on verses 18 through 23. And I want to share with you what I, what I find to be four truths about the act of submission um, and I'll, I'll fly by them through them pretty quickly. Uh, I know when I say four, that seems overwhelming. But four truths about submission that I think are true, that I think we as, as believers, as people who are willing to be those strangers, need, need to embrace. The first one that I, that I want to share is submission, by definition, is a vital act of denial. Submission is a vital act of denial. Now, what I mean by that, basically what I'm saying is Submission, by definition, is you denying yourself. I mean, think about it. Human, human instinct, human nature says, express yourself. Right? 
release, unleash yourself. Whatever, whatever is in here, let it out. Right? That's what our human instinct is. When you're hungry, do something about it. When you're thirsty, do something about it. Like we, we have desires, we have longings, we have cravings, and our instinct is to feed those longings and those cravings. But where human nature says, express yourself, submission says, suppress yourself. Hold back. Withdraw. They're opposite. Where human nature says, my will be done. Submission says, thy will be done. Put my will, put my longings on hold. Which is why I think it's a great example that he gives us in this illustration of, of a slave and his master. Is that not true of a slave? A slave takes his longings and his desires and his will, his plan for his life, and he puts it on hold so that he can yield to the commands of his master. Right? Right? That's why he gives us that, that illustration. The act of submission is an act of denial. For you to submit yourself, you have to deny yourself. Now, I said it's a vital act of denial. Why, why do I say that? When I say vital, I mean you want to call yourself a Christian. You can't do that without first doing this. Our instinct is not just to unleash our desires our instinct is to rule ourselves, right? To be the gods of ourselves. My instinct is to be Lord and God over my body. That's my instinct. And that's your instinct as people. That's the way we're born. And until we can replace that lordship, until we can take ourselves off of the throne and replace it with the reign of Christ with, and make Him the Lord of our lives, we will never be able to submit. We'll never be able to live as obedient children of God until we first deny ourselves as the Lord and the gods of our life. So that's why, number one, submission is a vital act of self-denial. Not just because of this, but also because think of how much we fight for survival. Think about that survival gene we have as people. Right? outlast and to be on top and to protect ourselves and so we get insurance right we get uh smith and wesson we get a security system we get a dog all these things to protect ourselves right to prolong this life to, to live a longer life not just physically but we do the same thing socially don't we want to be on top of the social ladder too we want to be accepted we want to be uh liked we want to be in the in group, not the out group, right? Survival is at the, at, at the core of who we are, both physically, socially, uh, socioeconomically. We, we want to, to survive and we want to be on top. And oftentimes, submitting requires you to do the opposite of that. Oftentimes, our act of submitting, of lowering ourselves, will result in the opposite of those things happening. We will be faced as people with decisions that will alter the rest of our lives. We'll be faced with circumstances that, that don't make sense, where we have a decision to make. Either we will follow the world and seek to prolong this little fleeting life that we have, or we will endure whatever this suffering that comes out of our submission has for us, trusting that hope 
And that inheritance is waiting. That'll be the mark that defines which side we end up on. Is it our goal to survive or is it our goal to submit? They don't always mean the same thing. Um, so that, that's the first thing I, I want us to see. Submission is a vital act of denial. Number two, and we see this uh, in verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His sins. Oh, sorry, follow in His steps. And what is that example? He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten. That's the example He set for us. So the second thing I'd like to say to you about submission is submission follows the example of Christ. Follows Christ's steps. And let me just tell you this. Christ's steps did not lead to a comfortable life. Christ's steps led to a cross. Christ's steps revealed a lifestyle that denied every instinct of human nature. Denied every instinct of our, of our being as a person. Of humanity. From the beginning all the way to His last breath, He submitted Himself and denied what was rightfully His. That's the example He sets for us. Now as we see those, the, that picture in verse 22 and 23 about the suffering and how He didn't revile back, that's, that's a picture that is taken from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. I want to read to you really quickly um, just how Isaiah paints this picture of Christ because it's not the picture we would typically think of when we think of a majestic and royal Jesus. This is not the picture we get in Isaiah 53. Here's what he says, starting in verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, follow in his footsteps. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Again, follow in his footsteps. Then on down in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. This is the man that, that Peter challenges us to follow his example. Can you see the, the picture here, the posture of submission that, that Jesus has? Is it clear? It's clear to me. He, he has denied every right that he has in order to, to trust in the plan to trust in, in, uh, in the will of God in this situation. And, he, and in doing so, really, if you think about it, he kind of belittles anything we could, we could encounter, if you think about it. Like reading that, that picture of what Christ suffered and what he endured on our behalf, it really makes, us, really makes our struggles and our difficulties and the things that make us mad look a little bit smaller, doesn't it? Nothing we could ever endure, nothing we could ever experience will ever compare, will ever compare to the suffering that Christ endured on our behalf. And His submission into suffering that wasn't just is the example that Peter calls us to follow. And look at, look at what he denied. First off, he denied perfect world, sorry, perfect heaven to come to sinful broken world. He chose 
the world over heaven. He chose rags over riches. As the king of the universe, the king of kings, prince of peace, he chose rags over riches, right? He chose humiliation over fame. He was humiliated, beaten, spit on, falsely accused. He chose all that over the fame and the praises that were rightfully his. He chose discomfort and suffering over comfort and an easy life. And ultimately, and and I mean this, ultimately, he chose death over life. Who does that? That is not natural. I can't express enough to you how unhuman that was. That submission doesn't make sense to the world. Yet he did it. Why? Because he trusted in something greater. He knew that there was more than just that. And so he was willing to to submit himself to pain and to suffering that was not just. And that's what Peter says for us to follow. Peter says you follow that example. Peter says, if you're reviled, do not revile back. You're beaten, do not retaliate. Submit yourself. Remember who Peter was? Now that night when this stuff happened and I just read about in Isaiah 53, what was Peter doing? They're praying in the garden. Judas shows up with, his, uh, with the guards right, and the, the Pharisees and they come to arrest Jesus. And what's Peter's response? Let's cut off their ears. Right? That's what he did. Peter grabbed his sword and to retaliate because he saw his, his king being arrested, he says, I'm going to cut off that servant's ear. Now, I don't know what the strategy was behind cutting off a servant boy's ear, but that was the move he made. That was the, the weapon of choice and the, the move he chose to make. I don't know. But does that sound anything like the Peter who now in, in this letter is saying, When you are reviled, do not reviled back. When you are beaten, do not retaliate. Entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. Does that sound like the same person? Peter did what any of us would have naturally done. Peter has a a goal in life. He has this idea of where his life is going to go. And a big part of that is this Jesus guy who's basically pulled him away from his job. And now he sees all that in jeopardy. Right? He's faced with a situation where all that is in jeopardy. If Jesus gets arrested and crucified, well, now what am I going to do? And so how does he react? He reacts like any human being would. And he takes matters into his own hands. His own sword. Very different than the Peter we see here at the end. Very different because the example of Christ the example that he watched, he's speaking firsthand from experience here. That example changes people. The example Christ set by giving himself up, by bearing our sins on that cross, by submitting all of his rights, changed Peter. And this Peter who cut off the, the servant boy's ear and then a few minutes later denied Jesus at the, behind the fire because he was afraid for his life, guess how his life ended up? He was killed for his faith on a cross. I think he knows a thing or two about suffering, about submitting himself. But get this, when they went to put him on a cross, 
You know what he said? I'm not fit to die like Jesus did. Put me upside down. So they did. They crucified Peter upside down for his faith. Very, very different from the Peter who, when his life is on the line, when his safety is on the line, rushes to defend himself. Now he willfully gives himself up. Now he, he submits himself to the authority and says, go ahead, you can take my life. I've got an inheritance waiting on me. I have a hope that is, that is ahead, that is coming, and it's way better than anything you have to offer me. Go ahead, put me on a cross. And you know what? Do it upside down. I don't care. That's a major, major transformation, if you ask me. Submission is an act of following the example of Christ into suffering. So, how do we do it? How do we submit? Even when it doesn't make sense. Even if, if it leads to this suffering. Well, that brings me to, to my third point about submission. And that is this. Submission entrusts the just judge. Submission entrusts the just judge. If we look back at this example of Christ in 1 Peter chapter 2. All these statements about him not reviling back. And him not retaliating. And him, him not responding to the threats. Here's why he did it in the end of verse 23. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He continued entrusting himself to a just judge. If we look back at what I read at the beginning of chapter 3 about submitting to authority, did you notice why it said to submit to authority? What was in the middle of those words? It said, for the Lord's sake. And then a few verses later in verse 18 and 19, as he says, slaves, submit to your masters. Why does he say to submit to your masters? He says, you'll do it because you are mindful of God. So in all three of those verses, what, what's the common denominator? For the Lord's sake, because you are mindful of God, and because you are entrusting yourself to a just judge. What's the common denominator? In all three cases, the believer was conscious of God, was trusting in God's plan and God's sovereignty over this circumstance. Instead of taking matters into their own hands, instead of fighting back, they trusted the judge who judges justly. We need to hear that. Because I'll, I'll be honest with you, I like being the judge. I don't like when things happen to me that don't benefit me. When somebody speaks poorly about me, I get frustrated. And I want to speak poorly about them. When somebody treats me unfairly, you know what I want to do? I want to pout about it. I want to sit at the lunch label and I want to tell you all about how messed up my day is because of what this person did to me. We like being the judge. And when we're the judge, we always fight back. Someone hurts us, it's our instinct, it's our nature to hurt someone else. Either the person who hurt us, or whoever else is just unfortunate enough to be in the blast radius. We want to hurt somebody. Because somehow in our mind, we, we think, well, I've been hurt, so if I hurt somebody else, or if I hurt the person back, if I get revenge, it'll somehow 
somehow restore the balance and bring back that equilibrium, right? That's, that's somehow how our mind works. And so that's what happens. Hurt people just keep on hurting other people. You look at history. From family feuds to world wars, people always fight back. We always fight back. And we will continue to do that unless we give up this spot as judge. Unless we can be mindful of God. Unless we can act for the Lord's sake. Unless we can entrust the judge who judges justly. Until we can let that become a reality in our lives, we will continue to to retaliate. We will continue to revile. Guys, we need that in our workplace. We need to know that. When your boss is unfair, when your boss doesn't appreciate you, keeps piling on more work and taking credit for it, when your students or your coworkers don't carry their weight, when your spouse or your children or your parents don't treat you fairly, don't appreciate you, make you mad, will we be the judge or will we submit ourselves to the judge who judges justly? Faithful submission, trust a just judge. Jesus knew that that death He died was not the end. He was trusting a judge who was going to repay everything that needed to be repaid and He didn't have to worry about it. Which brings me to the last point. Amen. Submission leads to us sharing Christ's glory. Even though Jesus submitted Himself, denied all of His rights to the point of death, we know Praise the Lord. Death was not the end of His story. He rose again and now He sits at the right hand of God and there is a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and He will receive the praise and the glory He deserves. First, He submitted. Look at what His submission led to. Look at what His submission led to. It makes sense. I mean, you compare this temporary, short, tiny life compared to all of eternity. If you've got to pick one of the places to be glorified and one of the places to submit, it's a pretty obvious choice, right? I want to turn your attention as I, as I talk about this to what Paul says to the believers in, in Romans chapter 8. He's talking about having to go through suffering. And he's talking about our status as children of God. And he says this to, to the Romans. He says, if you're a child of God, that means you're an heir of God. Meaning you inherit. There's that inheritance that I keep talking about. You inherit what's His. And if you're an heir of God, then you're a co-heir with Christ. Whatever Christ gets, you get. Christ is glorified, you're glorified. But listen to what he says at the end. He says, if you share in His sufferings in order that you may also share in His glory. You share in Christ's suffering. You submit yourself in this temporary life even though it may be painful, even though you may not deserve it, even though it may not be comfortable, and you will one day share in the glory of Christ. Paul's not the only one who says it. Even Peter here in this letter we're reading Multiple times. And I just, I'm just going to read these verses to you real quick. But 
in the third chapter, he says this, verse 14, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Then again on down in chapter 4, he says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And then finally in chapter 5, And when the the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. See a trend here? Peter's confident. Peter is sure that when his last breath is breathed, the rest of eternity will be spent in glory with, with Christ. And that in itself is worth it. You can take it whatever this world has to offer. You can suck it up because the inheritance is so much better. Share in His sufferings and you also get to share in His glory. I hope that we can be people who are willing to embrace our identity as outsiders, as aliens, that we won't sugarcoat it, we won't try and hide it, that we'll live it, that we'll be people who submit, that we deny ourselves, we follow Christ's example, that we trust the just judge, and that we keep our eyes set on the glory that's ahead of us. That's what makes it worth it. We can, we can handle it. I want to close with this statement from, from uh, C.S. Lewis. He said one time, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Hear all that? It's because we've lost our focus on what world is coming that we've become so ineffective in this world. I hope that we don't lose sight of what's coming. I hope we don't lose sight of the hope and the inheritance, and the riches and glory that's waiting for us. And let, me, and let me say this. I hope that that, the good news that's ahead, I hope that doesn't lead us just to become passive participants in this world. Because it could very easily do that. It could very easily lead us to say, oh, well, my, my life is coming in the next life, so I'm just going to sit back and watch the world happen and wait to die. I hope it doesn't do that. I hope the opposite happens in light of the fact that one day we get to share in Christ's inheritance, that should, that should inflame us to just devote all that we have with reckless abandon, not holding anything back to make sure that others also get to share this inheritance. Make sure that we're not the only ones who have a hope to look forward to. I hope we don't keep that to ourselves. So Christian, I, I challenge you have an, a posture of submission. When you're reviled, don't revile back. When you're are hurt, don't retaliate. Entrust yourself to the one who just, judges justly. But let me say this if you're out there and you're not a believer. Having heard this about the inheritance that we have to look forward to, having heard about the hope that is ours in Christ that cannot fade and cannot perish, I just have one question for you. How can you not want that? knowing that suffering and hard times are coming for all of us, saved and unsaved, how can you not want to be on the side that has something to look forward to? 
He says it clearly here. Christ did all of that. He submitted Himself for us. He bore our sins on the cross so that we could have life. He's done that for you. I hope if you're out there and you have not accepted Christ as your Savior, that today you would do that. You would recognize the price that was paid for you. And that in return, you would submit yourself. You, you climb off of that role as God. Climb out of that role as judge and let Christ take that place. That's my hope and that's my prayer for you today. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that you would work in our lives. I ask that you would help us to humble ourselves, help us to lower ourselves so that we might worship you for who you really are. God, it is not going to be easy, and so I ask that you would give us strength daily to remember who we are inside of you. Help us to submit ourselves. Help us to deny ourselves. Help us to follow your example. Help us to trust you as the just judge. And then help us to keep our eyes focused on your glory. I ask that you would change hearts and lives today through what has been said. And empower us to honor you in the way we live our lives. In your name I pray. Amen.